If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the second book of Kings, chapter 5. Second Kings, chapter 5, and I'd like to look at a familiar story with you about Naaman, known as Naaman the leper. And, you know, I was not raised in the church, so when I read these stories, I, I, some of you grew up hearing them in cradle roll, and uh, you, you could think that these stories are relegated to, you know, the, the junior division or something, and they're really filled with tremendous theology for ministry and for salvation. 2 Kings 5, verse 1. Now, Naaman... And the word Naaman means pleasant. Commander of the army of the king of Syria was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, that master being Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor. I'm going to stop right there. Haven't finished the verse, but I want to stop there. If I stop there... Naaman seems to possess everything that any man might want. He is respected. You know, they say that uh, one of the most common things that a counselor will tell the wife is your husband needs to feel respect. Men want to be respected by their peers, respected in their family. They want to feel like that they have achieved something. He had that. He was known for being manly. A courageous man, a valiant man, a mighty man, won battles, conquered nations. Someone the Lord could use. It says the Lord used him to give deliverance to Syria from their other surrounding enemies. An honorable man, a man of integrity. He could be trusted. He was respected. When he went up the streets of Syria or Damascus in his chariot, people turned, they stopped, they bowed. He was no doubt a wealthy man. I mean, he's commanding the budget for the Pentagon. And uh, rich, famous, brave, respected. And you'd think if any man had that, he'd be satisfied. But the last five words change everything. It says, but he was a leper. He was dying from this terrible disease. Uh, a disease that separates, a disease that makes you lose your sensation. And I'm out of place in a room full of doctors telling you what leprosy is. Of course, you probably don't know a lot about it because there were only 108 cases of leprosy in North America, in, unless you've been in the mission field. In 2001, I think, there were about 108 cases. But you go to India, an African, I've seen it there. I remember trying to give an offering to one of the beggars on the streets in India who held up what was left of her hand. Contrary to what people think, your extremities don't just start dropping off when you get leprosy. It begins because of the lesions and, and the infection from not feeling. Your, your nerves get damaged in the extremities and it's injuries that result. And the blindness comes, first thing you lose actually is your eyelashes. And you can forget to blink. Your eyes get dry and it affects the mucus. And, so they go blind and, and often from injury and disease. That's what takes the lepers. They're still not even sure today what causes it. And you know there's no cure today. 
They can give you antibiotics that will arrest the growth, but they don't really have a cure. And leprosy in the Bible is compared to sin because, you know, the Bible says sin separates. One of the things about leprosy is it, it separated you. You were declared unclean. You can read here in uh, Leviticus 13.45, the law regarding the leper. Now the leper upon whom the sore is, his clothes will be torn. You're to walk around with torn clothes, a symbol of you're wearing filthy rags, unrighteousness. His head bare, and he'll cover his mustache with a cloth and cry, unclean, unclean. How'd you like to go up and down the roads like that? And it separated. They knew it was contagious. They're still not even sure today. They only have theories about how it spread because it spreads five years before the first symptoms show up. So it's hard to track. Where were you five years ago? What were you doing? Who were you with? King Isaiah was smitten with leprosy and the Bible says he dwelt in an isolated house by himself because he was a leper. Sin separates. Sin makes you lose your sensation. Right here in town was the first time I started eating out of a garbage can. I didn't grow up doing that. I learned to do it and it happened little by little. By associating with other people who ate out of garbage cans, at first I was revolted by it, but I kept hanging around them and pretty soon I got to the place where I would give them instructions. You know, point in the dumpster to the bread that was still in the wrapper, the can that was only dented, and then I was reaching over the side of the slimy dumpster, and eventually I was climbing in. And it happened little by little. You start losing your sensation for what's right and wrong. And that's happening in our culture. It's happening in our church. Um, I'm appalled. You know, right now in California, we're trying to decide whether marriage is between a man and a woman. That is, I think, an abomination. According to God, don't take that up with me. It's an abomination that we don't know the difference. And our church, as a denomination, voted in 2000, Proposition 22, which says marriage in California will be between a man and a woman. It seems like a no-brainer any kindergartner could figure out. And our church took a stand. And our conference stood up and said, we are in favor of this proposition and recommend people vote. Well, now we've got Proposition 8 that will be voted Tuesday. And our church is being silent on it. They say, we'll just need to pray. We'll tell you what our history has been. And you kind of decide for yourself. What changed? Clifford Goldstein asked a good question. He said, did the Bible change? Did the truth change? Or did our culture change and our nerves are damaged? And we're losing sensation of what's right and wrong. And I'm affected by it. We're all affected by it. You've got to guard against it. I got in my rental car yesterday. And, you know, you have to get situated. Every car is different. You've probably all done this. And, you know, and you're smelling the last occupants and their cigarettes or whatever. And, and uh, I turned the key. Some of them you can't find it now because they get these hybrids or it's a Nissan where you don't even have a key and you've got a key in your hand, but there's nowhere to stick the key. You press a button. And, and so you've got to get situated, you know, and I get the thing started and I'm trying to adjust the mirrors and figure out how to hurry up. I'm always in a hurry to get out on the freeway and get going. And 
I was probably in the car three or four minutes before I realized that the radio was on and it was playing this absolutely abominable music. But you get so used to hearing that in our culture in the background that what once was, oh, what is that racket? I didn't even notice it for a few minutes. I thought, what's happening to me? I'm so used to it that it took a while for me to say, what is that noise? Little by little. So Naaman finds out he's got leprosy. And even though he's got everything any man would want, he's not happy. He's dying. What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? So, he's got a little girl in his household. The Syrians, verse 2, had gone out on raids and they had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. You know, there was war between Syria and Israel back then the way there is today and some of the marauding bands that would sneak across during harvest time, the borders, and they would raid the farms and they'd ransack these small towns before the king could muster an army and defend them. And they'd often grab the children that might be out there and carry them off to sell. This little girl was snatched from her home and all she was used to, her, her family. She evidently had pious parents because they taught her about God, carried her off, and you know, God watched out for her. She could have been sold to make bricks. I remember seeing in India these children working in brickyards, little kids. And, um, but she was put in a nice home. You know, like Joseph bought, put in the house of Potiphar. And maybe she remembered the story of Joseph. And she said, you know, God's got a plan. I don't know what his plan is, but I'm going to be faithful. And when she found out about her master and his disease, and maybe her mistress, the, the wife of Naaman, was pining one day what had happened. She had learned the language. And she said, uh, very simple childlike faith. She said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. Now there's no record that Elisha had ever healed anybody of leprosy. The only leprous healing in the Bible is where God healed Miriam. But there is no record of anyone else being healed. And yet, but she had childlike faith. And you know, that's based on something. The Bible records everybody who came to Elisha with a problem, he took care of them. You name for me, one time in the Bible, someone came to Elisha with a problem. He said, I can't help you. Everybody he helped. And by the way, the name Elisha is similar to the name Jesus. Jesus' name is Yahshua. Jehovah is Savior. Elisha's name is Elohim Shua. God is Savior. It's the same name, basically. It's just the other form of God. And he's a type of Christ in this story. If he would go to the land, to the Holy Land, and see the prophet that is in Samaria, and that was Elisha, he would heal him of his leprosy. You know, Jesus had several lepers that came to him. You're unclean, and probably Naaman is now living out in the mother-in-law's quarters, this isolated house, because he's got leprosy. He can't hug his wife or his children. He's separated. March down the streets of Damascus now, and people turn away have to say unclean. Just a little better than living with a colony. And you know, when you're sick, you're desperate. 
that's something I've noticed. My family used to just make fun of me and tease me because of my religion. And, and uh, I was, whenever I'd get together at any family gathering, they would kind of taunt me, mock me. Dad would say, oh, you're a preacher. You work one day a week. And uh, when my family was with my brother and, and I'd say, can we have a blessing before we eat? Because you know, we used to doing that with the kids. He'd say, let me do it for you. Rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. And, you know, just that's kind of the way my family was. But when my brother was dying, and I was called and said, uh, you better get out here. Falcon, he had cystic fibrosis. It's real bad this time. He'd been in uh, the hospital my whole life. And they said, we don't think he's going home this time. And I got on a plane. I got out there. And I went in the room. Nobody made fun of me because I was a pastor. And when they were all in the room there, and I said to Falcon, He's got the oxygen turned up to 100%. And he's sitting on the edge of his bed, just leaning over so he could breathe with what little bit of lung he had left. And um, it's like a slow drown. And I said, Falcon, can I pray for you? And he just nodded with his mask on. He didn't make fun of me. And when people are dying and somebody's offering them hope of healing, they're desperate. They're very open. You have tremendous power as a doctor because you have life in your hands you offer them life extended life I mean even if it's a toothache I know we got dentists here and someone's hurting and you can offer them relief you know how much people will pay for relief I'll tell you friend I got hay fever and if I have an attack and I know that there's some kind of antihistamine at a drugstore. And I can't do anything because, uh, you know, my face is like a faucet. I'm willing to pay big bucks for one pill just to feel a little better. I know it's not life or death. That's because I have no tolerance for misery. <laughs> but the world's sick out there. And they want healing. And they're desperate. So when word reaches Naaman, his wife maybe has some servants or she brings him some food. She has to walk away and they talk at a distance, you know. She says, you know, I was talking to the little Hebrew girl. She said that the prophet Elisha, now they had heard about Elisha in Syria. They knew that he performed miracles. No record of him healing a leper, but they knew that they had real prophet there. This is the apprentice of Elijah. They knew about him. He prayed and it didn't rain. They knew about that just north. Ahab went looking for him up in Damascus. That prophet Elisha, she says he can heal a leper. I mean, you know the king? Maybe if he'd write you a check and, and pretty certain word reaches the king, then hey, Dad, he doesn't want to lose his general. This is his secret weapon. God had used this man. It's hard to find good people, right? you got a good one. You want to provide a good health program. And so he said, look, whatever it takes, name it. He says, here, I'll give you the money, a blank check. Take what you need. Take a contingent of soldiers with you. Get yourself down there and find out if this is true. What have you got to lose? You're dying. I was just in Mexico uh, last week, a little more than a week ago, doing a week of prayer in Montemorelos. Boy, that's a great school down there and um, while I was there um, 
By the way, we had a good record attendance and baptized 50 people. A lot of Catholic kids that had been going that never took a stand. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. So just uh, praise the Lord for that opportunity to be down there. And I speak about four more words of Spanish now. But uh, they have a sanitarium called Canoa Sanitarium. Or, I'm not saying it right. Sanitarium. Anyway, that's the Spanish word for it. And they took me up there. And it's a place that specializes in healing. Dr. Thomas Lopez. Been there 37 years. Any of you ever heard of this place? A couple of you. Yeah. I was really surprised. This guy's just an Olteca Indian who was a, a non-Adventist physician in Mexico City making lots of money. And he realized he was just dispensing drugs and wasn't really helping their problems. And found the truth by reading the Bible. Became an Adventist just from reading the Bible. Took me into his home, ate dinner with him and his family. And uh, they got the sanitarium that can take up to 100 people, and they're full all the time. I said, how do you advertise? He says, we don't advertise. He says, word of mouth. I wanted to see his advertising literature. He said, we don't have any. And I talked to some of the couples that spoke English, some of the families there that were dealing with cancer, and they're just having miraculous results. And he said, you know, not everybody comes and is healed because some of them come pretty late stage cancer. But we see a lot of miracles, and he showed us some pictures and some of the x-rays of miracles of tumors and things where that, uh, natural remedies, a lot of what we normally teach and believe. And, uh, but it was interesting that people came there. I talked to families that had come from other parts of the world because they were desperate. And they would have given anything. The big expense for them was getting there. It's not an expensive program. And I thought, boy, would the Lord that we had something like that in North America that could get some press. I was surprised that what they're doing there wasn't famous all over the world. Nice facility. He said, you go to go. I'll send you the money. Verse 5. So the king sent a letter, Ben-Hadad, to the king of Israel. You know, there's a lot of tension back then. Between them two, they just sort of had a tenuous peace at this point. So he departed and he took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels, that's 150 pounds of gold. No, no, 75 pounds of gold, I'm sorry. And about 300 pounds of silver. And 10 changes of clothing. These clothing, they're not Walmart clothing. This is Neiman Marcus clothing. <laughs> 10 wardrobes of clothing. Now the little girl didn't say go to the king. She said go to the prophet. But you know Naaman's used to dealing with the palace and the protocol and all that. You got to come see the king and the king introduces you and they, they have a, a, some kind of introductory session there on the White House lawn and all the fanfare and she didn't say that. The little girl gave a message that said go to the prophet. Now you'll notice there's several messages that come before Naaman is healed and cleansed. And the letter said, now be advised, I mean, this was just not written well, be advised that when this letter comes to you, that I've sent Nahum and my general <laughs> of my army that fights your army, my servant to you that you might heal him of his leprosy. Well, talk about an awkward moment. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter, he was totally bewildered that he tore his clothes 
and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. He's trying to create an international incident. He's just wanting me to insult his general so they've got cause to start lobbing missiles over against us. And, and uh, I mean, he's just, you know, putting the obvious bad spin on what's happening here. And there's great perplexity and consternation there in the palace of Israel. Why is he doing this? Pretty soon it, it reaches the press wires and makes its way to the house of Elisha that's just outside of Samaria. And he tore his clothes. He's seeking a quarrel with me. I'm in verse 8. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now the king should have torn his clothes because they were worshiping idols in Bethel and Dan. They weren't mourning over the right things. They were mourning over their own political problems and they weren't mourning over the spiritual problems. I said, why did he tear his clothes? Please let him come to me. What does Jesus say if we want cleansing and healing? Come unto me. There are two great utterances in the book of Matthew that summarize the essence of the gospel. It's very basic. You come to Jesus and you go for Jesus. Matthew 11, you come to Jesus. Come unto me all. In Matthew 28, go ye therefore, teach all nations. We come to Christ just as we are. He heals us. He cleanses us. And for what purpose? That we might go and pass on that healing and that cleansing. It's very simple. You come to Christ. He saves you. It's, or you come to Christ. It's this love relationship. Love the Lord. And then you go for Christ. Love your neighbor. The whole gospel is summarized in this. It says, let him come to me that he might know there is a prophet in Israel. Is there still a prophet in Israel today? Have God's people forgotten? I mean, he came for a message that the prophet had an answer to. People all over the world are looking for the message that we've got, and we've got a prophet that has the answer. But you know who's forgotten? God's people. And we get so involved in the political problems. And you notice that Naaman came to the government instead of God. The answer was not with the government. The answer was with God. And we still do the same thing here. We try to substitute policemen for pastors. He said, let him come to me. And so eventually word got to Naaman, look, you need to just go see the prophet. He's invited you to come see him. Now, you don't travel back then carrying all of this money by yourself. As you read on, you're going to find out that he had a contingent of soldiers that were carrying all of this gold. There's a great procession. He's got servants with him. And he's riding in a royal chariot. And with a lot of pomp and ceremony, they make their way to the humble house of this prophet. And they're there at the door. And... Uh, one of his servants knocks on the door of Elisha and he expects Elisha to come out to him and to bow and to go through the fanfare and, and he doesn't even come out. It says that he came and he stood at the door of the house of Elisha and Elisha sent a messenger to him. Didn't even come out. And he said, go and wash. He didn't even get to tell him what the problem was. Don't you give me 15 minutes? 
And you know, I know it's a struggle for doctors and dentists because you just probably feel awful. You know, you got all these patients waiting out there and they're already irritated because they're waiting and you're behind schedule. And the ones who have your attention think, look, I finally got you, I want a lot of attention. And you're doing your best to pretend that you're giving them 100% of attention and you love them and only them and answer their questions and not seem rushed. But I know you're rushed. And you know, I wanna commend you, you do a good job. I don't know what school do you go to so that you can look like you're not rushed. <laughs> so you can look like I can't wait to get on to the next patient because I'm getting behind right now. That, you guys do a great job. I really admire my doctor and the way that he copes with me because I've always got a lot more questions than he has time for. But he doesn't even come out. Doesn't even invite him into the waiting room. Sends the messenger out the door where it tells what the hours are. And then of all things, doesn't even give him a prescription to go to the drugstore. He tells him to go to the river. And not just any river, the Jordan River. Have you been to the Jordan River? You know, the Jordan River carries a whole lot of silt. And it's not a crystal clear mountain stream. Matter of fact, in the summertime, it can be a series of stagnating pools. Whereas the rivers that come into Damascus come down from these mountains and they're often a lot, at least back then, were cleaner and clearer. And what does it imply when someone's prescription for you is, you need to take a bath. <laughs> and if the implication of you need to take a bath is that you're dirty, then what is the implication if he says you need to take seven baths <laughs> in a dirty river? You know, I remember that uh, when we were younger, my brother and my stepbrother and I, uh, sometimes we'd all take a bath, not at the same time, but they'd fill up the tub and and uh, John would get in, and then Falcon would get in, and then I would get in. And I used to wonder, why do I always have to get in last? Because the one water is dirty. And they'd say, well, the water is still cleaner than you are. <laughs> and you wonder why I need therapy. <laughs> so, when you're told to wash in a dirty river, seven times. That's not good for your esteem if you are a general that's used to having headlines. Can you understand why he was a little indignant? So there's a message that comes from a little girl and then there's a message that comes from Gehazi, the servant of Elisha. And when he gets this, it says in verse 11, and he said, you shall be clean. He didn't say try this and see if it works. If it doesn't work, come back and see me. And you've probably had to all give that advice before. He said, you shall be clean. Jesus one time had a leper come to him and he said, Lord, I believe if, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus actually went so far as to reach out and touch him and say, I am willing, be clean. 
And just the word of the Lord saying, be clean, he became cleansed. Because that's the same word that said, let there be light. And there was light. There's creative power in the word of God. Something else I've noticed about the healing of Jesus. Jesus would touch people that were unclean. And according to Jewish law, if you're clean and someone's unclean, and if you touch them, the uncleanness flows from them to you. You become unclean. But Jesus would touch unclean people and the polarity was reversed. And the power of cleanliness was flowing from him to them. And instead of them making him unclean, he made them clean. Like that woman with the flow of blood. She was unclean. She touched Jesus. She became clean. She was healed. He still does that today, doesn't he? That same power. But Naaman... Things didn't happen the way he expected. And, you know, he's sort of insulted. You have to admit, it must be humiliating. He's going around. He's, he's covered up because he's got leprosy. He's got these sores that was probably advanced. As we read on, you'll see. It's humiliating. He goes to the king, and there's this big turmoil, and he hears them speaking in Hebrew. He says, what are they saying? What are they saying? The king said, he doesn't know what you're doing here, and you're his enemy. What are you doing for cleansing? It's sort of humiliating. And then he says, you know, you've got to go to the prophet. So he goes to the prophet. This is a humble house. It's not the palace. Why couldn't they bring the prophet to the palace and meet him there? That's what he was used to. Doesn't he know who I am? He comes, he doesn't even come out to see him. Doesn't build a fire, dance around it, throw some gunpowder in the fire. I mean, they used to put on a show back and when you went to a prophet and he brought all this money, doesn't he have any respect? Doesn't he know what I can pay? I remember when my, um, my brother... I told you he was dying of cystic fibrosis. My father started, well, he started a hospital. You go to Florida, you'll see Bachelor Children's Hospital. My dad built most of that and, and had millions of dollars, and he invested all kinds of money in medicine and healing. But you know what? He didn't have enough money to save my brother. It doesn't matter how much money you have. You can't buy eternal life. We're all terminal. Naaman became furious. By the way, I just wanted you to notice something. People came to Elisha with a lot of money sometimes to pay for their healing. He wouldn't take any money from Naaman. Do you know one time, King Ben-Hadad, after Naaman was healed, you all know the story, I hope I didn't ruin it for you. After Naaman was healed, Ben-Hadad later got sick. He sent Haziel to Elisha and took a present of every good thing of Damascus. This is 2 Kings chapter 8. Forty camel loads. So when you came to a prophet of God, can you imagine bringing, you know how much a camel can carry? Forty camel burdens of the best things of Damascus were brought to Elisha for a prognosis. He didn't even ask for healing. He said, am I going to live or die? That's all he asked, a question. Forty camels. It's like when the Queen of Sheba came to Solomon. How much is truth worth? God's given us healing and truth. We've got great treasure in this church. He said, I thought he'd surely come out to me. Naaman was furious, verse 11. And he went away. He said to himself, I thought he'd come out to me. He didn't even come and see me. Instead, he sent a servant. Now, who does Elisha represent? Jesus, in this story. 
Does Jesus usually speak to us face to face or does he send messengers? Why wouldn't he speak to him face to face? Because he had leprosy. Why don't we get to see God face to face? Our sins have separated us from God. So God uses messengers. He says, are not a banner? Oh, he says, I thought he'd wave his hand over the place and heal the leper, as though it's somebody else. <laughs> are not a banner and Parfar, the rivers, these are ancient names, they're not exactly sure. There's several rivers, which ones these apply to. Rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel, could I not wash in them and be clean? And you know, that was probably a valid argument. Why do I have to go here, to this river? Can't I pick my own river? Does it matter what church you're part of? I mean, aren't there churches with better buildings and better music? Nicer people? I mean, can you make those arguments? God said, this is where I want you to go. The Jordan is a river. It's later where Jesus was baptized. It's where John did his baptizing. And Jordan is a symbol of death in the Bible. You know, it's in all the hymns. Jordan's stormy waves, Jordan's billows. We sing about it. It's the lowest river in the world. It's the only river in the world that feeds two oceans. One river feeds two seas. You got to wash in the Jordan. And he said, I, I'm not going to do that. And he went away in a rage. Now, He's got time to cool off because between Samaria and Damascus, you've got to ride along the borders of the Jordan. And he's riding. He could have crossed it. Matter of fact, depending on what time of year it was and where the ferry crossings were, there was one trail to actually cross the Jordan. He may have actually had to go down and get on a ferry and cross it. Can you imagine the struggle he must have felt in all of his servants? They're riding at a distance because he's got leprosy. He's in a chariot by himself. And as he's going by, he sees the Jordan. And he's thinking he's probably settled down. And you know what? He's going home to die now, isn't he? He's got his pride. He's still got his money. And he's still got his leprosy. And the Bible says that uh, his servants came near. They risked. They drove, rode their horses up close. Now there's a message comes through a little girl. Poor prophet's servant. And now his own soldiers. God often saves people not through any one message, but through a series of messages. Amen. And his servants came near and they spoke to him. They reasoned with him. And they do it tenderly. My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? You know, if he said, like David, go get a hundred foreskins of the Philistines and I'll let you have my daughter. And David said, I can do that. I'll get 200. <laughs> I mean, men like a challenge like that. Why don't you go kill this dragon or this ogre or climb that mountain or we can handle that. Take a bath? Come on. What do you think I am? That's not very nice. You know, Naaman thought his problem was leprosy. His problem was pride. I think it's easier for women to accept Jesus than men because men don't like to surrender. And in order to be saved, you must be broken. You must humble yourself. And they reasoned with him and he thought, you know, I would have done just about anything. And they said, why not do this? Try it. You're right here. You're going to go home and die. You're going to go home defeated. You're so close. Salvation is so close. 
How much more than when he says, wash and be clean? You know, that's what the Lord still says to us today. We come to Jesus just like we are. We wash and we're clean. Oh man, I just looked at my watch. I still don't have the power of Joshua yet to pray the sun will stand still. Hey, when does daylight savings time begin? <laughs> Can we borrow that? Yes. No, I know there's lunch. I'm hungry too. So, verse 14. He went down and he dipped seven times in the Jordan River according to the saying of the man of God. Now, does the amount of times he dipped make a difference? It does. God didn't say you'd be cleansed the first time or the third time. He said the seventh time. You get the blessing. When did the walls of Jericho fall? When did the miracle happen? Six times, five times, four times? If they had stopped after six times, they would have never taken Jericho. God means what he says. And when God says the seventh time, then you'll get a miracle. The blessing is in the seventh time. And people think we're fanatics when we say the seventh day does matter. God means what he says in his word. He is particular. By the way, do you know, in the healing law for leprosy, they were to take water that a dove had been washed in and sacrificed and sprinkled it on the leper seven times in the Levitical law. And it says when he came up, every time he went down, something was happening to him. Uh, he thought that he was washing away his leprosy. God was washing away his pride. You men ever jack up a car? Dumb question. But your doctors, I don't know. <laughs> You know, when you first put the jack in, you first jack it once or twice, you, pretty, you, you engage and you start feeling the pressure of the vehicle. And you jack a couple more times, you feel it starting to lift off its spring. You jack a couple more times, you see the tire is actually the, the fat spots going away off the base of the tire. And you jack it, eventually you jack it one more time and it clears the ground. And that's what was happening with him. Every time he went down, he was being set free a little bit until finally he was clear. And something happened. He felt something happen. Because it says his flesh was restored. And the way that's worded means there was something missing that was replaced. He already had the lesions and the, and the disease and the scales and the problems. And he came up and he was restored. And you know what just always cracks me up? It says his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. Now doesn't that seem a little incongruous to you that you would have a general with baby skin? <laughs> but isn't that what a Christian is? You're a soldier, but you're newborn. You're like a little child. You're converted, but you're a soldier. You're brave in the army of Christ. And that's what happens when you are, are saved. Oh, just will you bear with me just a moment longer? I, I don't want to rush. I'll share my food with you. Just it, <laughs> hang on one second. The story doesn't end. He goes to the man of God, he and all his aides, and he stood before him and he said, Look, indeed, now I know eternal life comes from knowing that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. He's now accepted the God of Israel. Why? Because he was healed. You know what's the most powerful thing? To reach people with the message is help them with their bodies. Heal them, take away their pain, give them hope. And then they'll listen. Now I know, because he's been healed. He hasn't even gotten the medical bill yet. Does he want to pay it? He says, I'm willing to give everything. Because what's worth more than life? He says, take a gift from your servant. But Elisha said, and there's Gehazi standing, rubbing his hands, like King Midas, looking at all this gold and silver. 
And he hears his master say, it's on the house. Not going to take anything. Please, he urges him. He says, no, absolutely not. Because your healing is synonymous with salvation and it can't be bought. It's free. It's like when Ahab, I'm sorry, it's when Abraham saved Lot. He refused to take anything. Some of you are wondering where I'm going with this. He refused to take anything for salvation from the king of Sodom. It's like when Daniel told King Belshazzar, keep your gifts, the truth is free. But Gehazi, he says, you know, Naaman says, can I have some dirt? Give me a little bit of the holy land. If you give me two camel, or two donkey loads of earth, I'm going to take it back because from now on, I'm going to offer sacrifice to the God Jehovah. And he says, go in peace. But as he's leaving, Gehazi sees him going away. And he thinks, my master's out of his mind. Doesn't he know what we need? I mean, we use new pews for the chapel and all these things. And he's out of his mind. Sending him away all that money. Just turned his back on it. And it says, uh, he said, as the Lord lives, um, I'm down in verse 20. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, says, look, my master is spared name in the Syrian. He's a Syrian. Take his money. Gentile. Not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I'm going to run after him and take something from him. Now Gehazi pursued Naaman, and when Naaman saw him running, he got down from his chariot to meet him. He said, is all well? He said, yes, all well. My master sent me saying, indeed, now I, I just had two men, sons of the prophets. They just showed up after you left, and they need a little something. Can you give them a, a talent of silver and two changes of garment? Just need about 75 pounds of silver and two changes of garments. And Naaman says, take twice as much. Take 150 pounds of silver. Why is he so generous? He's giving because he's so happy for life. He says, I'll, I'll give. You know, that's the right reason to give, isn't it? Because you've been cleansed. He can go home now and embrace his wife. He can go home. He's got life. Nothing is more important to him than that. But Gehazi, he's now looking at the treasure on earth. And so he says, take it. He takes it back to his house. He hides it. He comes and he stands before Elisha like nothing's happened. And Elisha said, where did you go, Gehazi? He said, I didn't go anywhere. You don't say that to a prophet. <laughs> then he said to him, did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money, to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen? And I'm not saying that it's wrong to bill for medical help because Elisha did keep the camel burdens that came from Ben-Hadad later. But this was a type of salvation. He wasn't supposed to take that. And we all need to know when to do one on the house, don't we? Huh? Yes. You know what I mean. And listen to this. He said, therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out of his presence, a leper white as snow. Now, what does this say to me? Gehazi, who was a Jew, who had worked in the presence of a Jewish prophet, did not appreciate the prophet that he grew up with. But the Gentile appreciated it. Here, the Gentile becomes a Jew the Gentiles healed from his leprosy 
and the Jew becomes a leper. Here the general, he becomes a servant of Jehovah and the servant of Jehovah, he goes out of the presence of the prophet's house a leper. It's a very interesting story of transition. Gehazi, he wanted to sell the message for silver, like Judas sold the savior for silver. And you know, I think that there's a special temptation that faces preachers and physicians. For one thing, they shouldn't fly planes, they say, because they're too distracted. Haven't you heard that, Neil? <laughs> Neil and I both pilots, but they say they get real distracted. And so the other thing is they're often tempted to lose focus on what their ministry is. They say if it's not the honey, it's the money. That gets them mixed up. As Christians, we're to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, friends. Amen? Amen? One man starts out a leper and ends up a servant of God. The other one starts out a servant of God and ends up a leper. The Gentile comes to the house of God and he is saved from his leprosy. The Jew leaves the house of Elisha a leper. Naaman wanted the soil of the Holy Land to worship God. And Gehazi, because of his greed, he wanted the silver. And all of us are really faced with those two things. The world and all it offers are healing and cleansing. And that's what the Lord is offering. And that's my appeal for you, is there's a world out there that is sick. And God has given us a great message. They can be clean, they can be healed, they can be whole. They can have that joy. And we're to take that to them. And there is still a prophet in Israel. If we'd follow the guidance and the counsel that we have, the world will come to us uh, looking for that cleansing. And I'd like to just ask, as we close our, our time here this morning, this message hour, if you'd like to say, Lord, I want to do two things. I want to come to you, and I want to go for you. I want to accept that cleansing and that healing that you offer spiritually, and then by your grace, I want to be a vehicle in my life to serve you and tell others about you and to seek the holy land of Canaan rather than the silver of the world. Is that your desire? Let's stand and ask him as we pray. Loving Father, oh, we just thank you for the cleansing that Jesus offers, the healing, the message of salvation that we can see all through your word, for both the comfort and the warnings that are given. Help us, Lord, to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and not be distracted by the, the trinkets of the world. Lord, I pray your blessing on this conference and every minister that is represented here. These physicians are ministers, Lord. I pray that you will guide them in their lives, bless them in their homes and their families, and help them know how to capitalize in every way possible on the gifts that you've given them for healing and service to reach others for your kingdom. Lord, we also pray that you will uh, bless the rest of this conference, pour out your spirit, bless the food we're about to participate in. We thank you for it. And again, we thank you for the Sabbath and the freedom we have to come and to worship you this day. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.